Hello my friends, welcome back to another episode of Gardo Goes Geek. On today's episode, as this year, um, well, I meant to get this out a bit earlier for for the actual anniversary, but uh, this year is the 30th anniversary of X-Men, the animated series, released in November 1992 with its first couple of episodes. And as a result, I thought I'd look back on the entire show and discuss why I think it is possibly the best X-Men adaptation. Stick around, it's going to be a good one. Now, firstly, as I seem to uh, start a lot of these episodes, I want to issue a quick apology. Um, This episode, along with uh, many others that are going to drop within the next few days, um, was designed originally, planned by me, to come out uh, in the end of 2022. I have been ill. Um, for want of a better word, I have um, had a lot of problems with my throat, um, a, a persistent cough that took a while to shift. And, you know, I use my voice day to day in a call centre. So um, the last thing I wanted to do when my voice was already suffering was sit and record. However, the intros for this and the other episodes um, were recorded well in advance Um and so, yes, they don't reflect the timing of these episodes as they're actually coming out. So I apologise for that. Um, now that we are in 2023, I hope to get better at uh, keeping to a schedule. Obviously, um, you know, it's a bit hard with real life sometimes. But I do have a full year of content planned that I am very much looking forward to doing so you know i want to get the the rest of these planned episodes out of the way um that makes them sound negative they're not they they are good but i want to to get them out get them to you and move on with the the content that i now have planned so this apology may be in a few of these episodes so if you have heard it before um you can skip it on subsequent ones it's about two minutes long so i think everyone has probably heard of the x-men um the x-men were at one point one of the biggest names in comics like (laughs) at one point it was reported in i believe the late 80s early 90s that the the entire X-Men line of comics, so literally anything with an X on the title, if you took the sales from those comics alone and weighed them up against the rest of Marvel and the entirety of DC Comics, the X-Men were outselling both combined. <laughs> so this gives you an idea of how big the x-men were x-men is huge it has been huge for a long time but it's not always been huge the x-men was originally created um by stan lee and jack kirby um 
two of the founders of Marvel Comics, who created them in 1963. Um, so I will be commenting on X-Men again uh, in 2023 um, for their 60th anniversary. And the X-Men, while a lot of people have attributed quotes to Stanley saying he created them as an allegory, saying he created them as a, uh, a reference to civil rights, and some element of that may be true. Stanley is, um, you know, he's, he's he was a very clever man in terms of constructing a narrative. Um, there's a, a quote that, He's said quite a lot when discussing Spider-Man, which is, I've told this story so often it might even be true. And I think that quote sums up Stanley perfectly. He, he, he has a habit of changing the narrative on his own things. Um, it's one of many mixed issues um, about the man that, that means that I could never make a... a, a concrete opinion on my thoughts about him um but regardless of that uh, lots of people will attribute uh quotes that he said about the x-men about how um they were an allegory for civil rights how it was a reference you know charles xavier was a reference to martin luther king magneto was a reference to um malcolm x with his more more violent means of um you know trying to promote equality but essentially, the one thing that pretty much everyone can agree on was that the, the X-Men, or the mutants, as they were originally called by uh, Stanley, were born out of laziness. By the 1963, um, Marvel had created a lot of heroes and a lot of villains. Um, that's that's the more interesting one. Um Obviously, heroes, you create them, they, they anchor a title, they carry on. Um, and so Marvel heroes that Stan Lee had created in this time period already um, included Spider-Man, Thor, um, Ant-Man, the Wasp, Iron Man, uh, Daredevil, I think, had already debuted by this point. Um, some of the other Avengers, the Fantastic Four... Uh, you know, when I say Avengers, I'm talking characters like Hawkeye, I think, had appeared by this point as well. Uh, the Hulk, you know, there'd been a lot of main heroes. But all of those heroes had an array of villains. Like, by the time the X-Men debuted, I think pretty, man, all, pretty much all of the main members of the Sinister Six had appeared in Spider-Man. So that was Doctor Octopus, the Sandman, Craven the Hunter, uh, the Chameleon, the Vulture... Uh, Mysterio, um, and then that's just, you know, the Spider-Man villains. There's also the Green Goblin, I think, had appeared by this point. Um, you know, going through the Avengers, you had Kang the Conqueror, you had, um, who I believe had appeared by this point, Baron Zemo, um, Captain America and Submariner had been reintroduced from the Golden Age. Um, the Fantastic Four had fought many of their biggest villains by this point including Doctor Doom, the Mole Man um, and so essentially what everyone forgets about comic books is yes you create the heroes 
but you also have to create the villains. And if you create the villains, and they'll they'll fight, like I said, the characters will fight different villains every issue, and some of them may reappear, but you know, for the most part, it's a different villain every issue. And so you have to create way more villains than you do heroes. And the thing with that is all of those villains need powers, need origin stories in exactly the same way as the heroes. We need to know who these characters are, how they got their fantastic abilities. And so the X-Men were born from laziness because Stanley's big idea with the X-Men was, oh, we'll just say they're born with their powers and they develop them at puberty. Brilliant. Because you can give characters now whatever powers you want and just say they're born with them. And the way you explain that they're born with them, oh, it's mutation, it's evolution, it's a natural evolution of humanity. And so were born the X-Men and their main antagonist, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, led by Magneto and featuring the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and several other characters that would go on to be huge names. So, yeah, it was because Stan Lee was getting sick of coming up with origin stories that we got the X-Men. Now... Stanley and Jack Kirby didn't stay on the X-Men comic for very long compared to some of the other titles they were writing at the time. Um, you know, Stanley stayed with the Avengers for a while. Um, he stayed with the Fantastic Four for a while. He stayed with um, Spider-Man for a while. Uh, in fact, Stan and Jack worked together on um, on the Fantastic Four and Stanley and Steve Ditko worked together on... Um, Spider-Man and also Doctor Strange. But with the X-Men, both of them left the title in fairly short order. I think they both left by the end of the first year, um, or definitely by the end of the second. X-Men was published um, bi-monthly, so it was every two months uh, that an issue of X-Men would come out. And Avengers launched at the same time. In fact, in the same month, September 1963, uh, you saw the launch of the Avengers title as well. And Stan sort of stayed on Avengers and left X-Men. And so other people took over X-Men. But X-Men, at least the original team of X-Men, consisting of... Cyclops, Jean Grey, um, who was called Marvel Girl at the time, Iceman, Angel, and Beast, led by Professor Xavier, never really took off. You know, it didn't become this huge household name. In fact, by the time of its 60th issue, the writing was on the wall, and X-Men was going to be cancelled. I think it was actually cancelled with issue 63, 64. Um, may even be 66. Anyway, uh, around about that point, X-Men was cancelled. Um, and the title was kept, but it entered reprints. So... Each of the titles was now reprinting stories from earlier. This was uh, the early 70s, and by this point, you know, Marvel was 
big and interconnected and you know the x-men had appeared in other titles they'd crossed over with the avengers um they'd crossed over with the defenders as well not the street level heroes that the defenders is currently known as but dr strange and silver surfers group um you know they they were well-established characters in the universe but they now joined a group of characters like the Inhumans, for example, or the Black Panther, who were characters that existed in the universe but didn't really have their own title because their title was now no longer printing new stories about them. It was printing reprints of their early adventures. And... And it was it was fair enough, it's fine. This is what happens in comics. Then a decision was made to relaunch the X-Men, to sort of go back to basics on it. And that led to 1975's Giant Size X-Men issue one. Giant Size X-Men one is a special which focuses on the original members of the team um, being captured by a walking island called Krakoa. And all of them are held there except for Cyclops, who manages to escape. Cyclops and Professor Xavier then gather a brand new team of X-Men. Um, featuring characters from across the world. So we had the Russian super-strong mutant Colossus, the African weather witch uh, Storm, the teleporting demon Nightcrawler from Germany, uh, the Irish Banshee, the Japanese Sunfire, and perhaps the character that would become the X-Men's most famous member, the Canadian super-soldier Wolverine. And this team of mutants was the one now sent to rescue the original X-Men from Krakoa. And what follows is uh, a very well-written, very, very fun adventure, uh, written by Len Wayne, uh, drawn by Dave Cockrum. And it became a smash hit. It revitalised the team, and soon the decision was made to progress from that in the issues uh sorry in the pages of the x-men title to cancel the reprints and start printing new comics and len wayne i think turned down the job as regular writer and so chris claremont took over and began what became a i believe it was 17 year run as the flagship writer of x-men and i'm not sure if that record has ever been broken like this man wrote the same comic for 17 years and <sighs> when recommending comics to people a lot of people will recommend the occasional classic story um, but if you're tending to recommend people ongoing comics, you tend to recommend a more recent story. Say, I'll oh, start here, it's only a couple of years old, and then you can, you know, work from there into the modern stuff. 
With X-Men, that has always been my exception. I always recommend starting at Giant Size X-Men 1 and then reading from there into the X-Men or the Uncanny X-Men as the title soon got renamed. Because Claremont's stuff with both Dave Cockrum and then later John Byrne forms the backbone of what the X-Men are. He takes everything that was established in the early six, you know, the 60s stories, uh, you know, these, these gathering of mutants sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them, um, you know, as they deal with racism from humans, they deal with their own evil counterparts. Chris Claremont took all of that with Cockrum and Byrne and reframed it and launched this era of unparalleled creativity um, where so much was created and added to the mythos of the X-Men to the point that the X-Men have their own allegories for pretty much every major thing in the Marvel Universe. There are magic items associated purely with the X-Men. There are alien races associated purely with the X-Men. There are time travel stories and science fiction stories associated purely with the X-Men, as opposed to the rest of the Marvel Universe. You know, the Fantastic Four had the Skrulls, the Avengers had the Kree, um, you know, 1971 saw the Kree-Skrull War in the issues of Avengers, where all these concepts came together. The X-Men introduced the Shi'ar Empire uh, and the Starjammers, which were the Guardians of the Galaxy before the Guardians of the Galaxy were even a thing. Um, they introduced the Savage Land, which was a land in Antarctica where dinosaurs still roamed the Earth in a tropical paradise, um, you know, alongside cavemen. Um, you know, they introduced magical items like Limbo and the Siege Perilous and demons, literal demons, that led to a story arc called Inferno, where demons took over Manhattan. Uh, you know, a line-wide crossover event that affected every title for every character set in New York. So it affected Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four. Like, in the Fantastic Four, Johnny couldn't turn off his flame when Limbo invaded Earth because it's fire, <laughs> you know? It's so good and so clever. And this led to such huge success you know like i said the the x-men were leading crossovers that were affecting the marvel universe inferno as much as it affected all these other characters it was an x-men story if you wanted to know why there were demons in new york you had to read the x-men titles to understand inferno so that was x-men x-factor and new mutants if you didn't read those you had no idea what was going on you had no idea why this was even a thing why were there demons in new york you know, and that story was in the mid-80s. By that point, the X-Men train had left the station and it was rocketing full speed down the line. You know, they, they were heading off to unparalleled levels of success. Um, you know, the, they launched a line of X-Men action figures based purely on the sales of these comics. You know... 
no cartoon series, no film series, nothing. Just the comics. And it sold to kids. Kids bought these, um, you know, bought these action figures. Um, and, you know, fun story, um, the... Marvel, well, not Marvel, Toy Biz, managed to argue successfully in court that the X-Men weren't human and therefore they wouldn't have to pay the higher tax for humanoid figures. Bet the makers of Teenage Mutant Turtles wish they'd thought of that one. Um, so, yeah, it was... It was it was great. X-Men was amazing. So many great characters that are still known and beloved got introduced during this time. Uh, Rogue, Gambit, um, Kitty Pride, you know, um, Emma Frost, uh, Mr. Sinister, Apocalypse, um, Magic, Cannonball so many great great characters introduced under Claremont's guidance and the team that he built up around him to help write these titles specifically Louis Simonson who wrote a lot of New Mutants um, and X Factor um, and yeah like I said X-Men was fantastic I love it um, the X-Men is one of my favourite comic books ever. It's always been one of the things that I've loved and adored. It's so much fun. And, you know, the characters are great. These are characters who bicker and fight. And uh, so much of their character drama comes from their interactions with each other. You only have to look at, you know, one of the central relationships, which is essentially a love triangle between uh, Wolverine, Cyclops and Jean Grey. Um, you know, where Jean is drawn to both of them and they're both drawn to her. It's so clever. I love it. Um, and, yeah. Eventually, Claremont left the title, but by that point, X-Men was a huge success. The second X-Men title that launched in the 90s, um, the first issue of it holds the Guinness World Record for the best-selling issue of a comic book. It sold 8 million copies. Now, part of that was due to the spectator boom in the early, you know, the late 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, this issue had multiple varying covers, which meant that some people were buying five issues of the same comic, you know, five issues of the same comic uh, five issues. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it's not, not a bad idea, not terrible. Um, but, you know, it was a good title regardless. Like, the actual first issue was, was, was good. And it led to Claremont's last story arc, which was X-Men Volume 2, Issue 1, 2, and 3, which saw all of the the 90s X-Men team, um, which at that point had been divided into Team Blue and Team Gold, and he was working with Jim Lee, who would go on to become one of the major heads at DC Comics uh, and one of the founders of Image. And, yeah, it was, it was a decent story, a nice, decent story with them and Magneto. And... 
from there, uh, other people would eventually take over, and that was roughly when I began reading X-Men. I began reading X-Men in the early 90s because... Um, I grew up in the UK and Panini Comics started publishing um, collector's editions, uh, as they were labeling them, labeling them over here, collecting the Spider-Man clone saga and X-Men from just before the Fatal Attraction story, um, which was a 1993 crossover uh, for the 30th anniversary of the X-Men, featuring them versus Magneto. And... You know, these started in sort of 1995, so that was when I started reading these characters. And, yeah, they were they were good. I enjoyed them. I collected um, Essential X-Men, as it was called over here, for years. Um, and I've read so many great stories as part of it. Um, as, as much as everyone goes on about 90s comic excess... Um, and there was plenty of it. There's plenty of 90s comics that have aged like milk. Um, X-Men is one that I will stand up for. It holds a, a special place in my heart. And there is a lot of good stuff in there. And of course, by this point, X-Men had moved into films and television. We had um, a Generation X TV movie um, based on the, the new title. There were plans to do an X-Men film. And we had X-Men the Animated Series. So, how does X-Men the Animated Series adapt what by that point was... 30 years of X-Men comics. Previously on X-Men. Now, X-Men the Animated Series was actually the second attempt to bring the X-Men to uh, cartoons. The first was a uh, television pilot broadcast in 1989, which is commonly referred to as Pride of the X-Men. Um, it ended up... It wasn't picked up, but it did form the basis for the Konami X-Men arcade game. Um, it features a team of Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm, Dazzler, and Wolverine, um, and adds uh, Kitty Pride as the 
sort of the the audience surrogate character being introduced to the team um you know it's, it's specifically influenced by a lot of issues around the dark phoenix saga um so sort of issues 129 to 139 of uncanny x-men um that introduced kitty pride and sort of brought her onto the team uh those issues also introduced the dazzler actually thinking about it um but marvel started having financial issues not long after the pilot was um delivered and so the pilot was never picked up and it actually marked the end of the first marvel animated universe which had been created by batty freling enterprises um, which had the 1978 Fantastic Four series, the 1979 Spider-Woman series, uh, Spider-Man and Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends from 1981, and The Incredible Hulk from 1982. Uh, the X-Men itself had even guest-starred in episodes of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, although that wasn't technically in the same continuity. Um... Pride of the X-Men was more notable for having Stan Lee actually narrate it, and it's quite meme-worthy due to its very, very 80s theme song, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, X-Men, the animated series, though, um, was picked up by Margaret Loesch, who was head of Fox's Children Network. She had been one of the champions of the Pride of the X-Men pilot, and so she was quite quick when she got the role as, as becoming head of Fox's Children in 1981 to set up an order for 13 episodes of X-Men. Um, the producer of the series was Saban Entertainment, um, who would later be known for their work with Power Rangers. And they hired a studio called Gratz Entertainment to produce the episodes as they didn't have enough staff to handle production in-house. Uh, Gratz was the one that employed the creative staff. They wrote and designed each episode. They drew the storyboards. Uh, they did the voice work in uh, Canada. And they did the animation in South Korea with the studio Acom. Now, the original pilot, Night of the Sentinels, was uh, a bit muddled. It turned it up late from Acom. It had animation errors that they refused to fix because they didn't have the time. Um, and so it was originally aired as kind of like a, a sneak preview um, with scenes missing and only like a day to edit it. Um, all these errors were corrected in subsequent um, re-airings in 1993 um, um, because Fox threatened to remove Acom's contracts uh, because of all the delays and errors the series aired mainly through 1993, the first 13 episodes. It um, earned top ratings throughout the season. It then got renewed for a second season of 13 episodes. And there were plenty of quality control issues. There were attempts to cut costs, requests to change the tone of the series to something more uh, child-friendly and to incorporate some of the toys that were being sold. Um, but, you know, the producers 
had a vision for this show and they generally stuck to it. Uh, the series was planned for 65 episodes. Um, this was eventually extended, although with a much reduced budget due to Marvel's uh, bankruptcy that was happening at around the same time. Um, that is a story I will discuss at some point because it's one of the more interesting stories in um, nerd culture. And so another couple of animation studios were brought in for the final episodes and some of the uh, final episodes that were developed were actually episodes that had been scrapped um, earlier on. They were just sort of tightened up and finished. So yeah, X-Men was very successful. It hit really good ratings for a, um animated series, especially a Saturday morning animated series. It, um, you know... it the success that it had was what led to uh, Power Rangers, which was the next series that Saban was trying to sell to Fox. Um, it led to an entire line of animated Marvel television. Um, so the Iron Man and Fantastic Four series as part of the Marvel Action Hour soon followed. Um, so did Incredible Hulk, which later added She-Hulk to the roster. And um, most notably, the Spider-Man um, 90s television series which again went on to huge critical acclaim um, and is again generally considered one of the best adaptations of the character now X-Men centred itself around a core cast of nine which is quite a large cast for an animated series the, the characters were based on the 90s designs of the X-Men drawn by Jim Lee, um, specifically the blue team. Um, a lot of the members of this comprise members of the blue team rather than the gold team. Um, so you have Cyclops, Wolverine, Rogue, Storm, Beast, Gambit, Jubilee, Jean Grey, and Professor Xavier. And this is a good team of characters there's uh, an even gender balance which uh, with the exception of Xavier between the team members which is really good to see um, Jubilee becomes the audience surrogate there's romantic tension between characters like Gambit and Rogue um, there's you know all sorts of dramatic tension between characters like Cyclops and Wolverine and also uh, Cyclops and Gambit as well um but, you know, there's also elements of genuine friendship and mentorship between, you know, especially around the characters like Storm and Beast um, and Jean Grey as well. So it, there's a lot of really interesting character dynamics that are built relatively quickly, actually, even in the first pilot episode, Night of the Sentinels, uh, which is a two-parter. You know, it builds up these characters very, very well. It introduces uh, another character as well, who was uh, an original character adapted from a previous X-Men, uh, who is Morph. He is an adaptation of um, the X-Men comics character Changeling. Now, Morph was originally introduced purely to die. Um, the Night of the Sentinels opening sees... 
sees the idea of the Mutant Registration Act, which is something that was used in Days of Future Past, one of the most famous X-Men stories um, created by Claremont and Byrne. It's essentially, there is a, a register of mutants, and that is being used by the Mutant Control Agency, I believe they're called, to round up mutants using the giant robots sentinels um now the sentinels are goofy but i love them they were very much a jack kirby creation these giant um sort of mauve and blue robots um <laughs> it's the same color combination that's used for galactus later on as well which is even more bizarre to me um but yeah, these these giant robots, because they are ridiculously tall. Um, they're about 30 foot tall, but humanoid. And yet they fly and they have laser blasters in their hands. And yeah, and, and their job is to round up and battle mutants. And yeah, the, Jubilee is registered by her foster parents because she's a mutant. And so the Sentinels then come for her. They attack her in her home. They attack her in the mall. Um, she ends up running across the X-Men, who are also in the mall. They save her. They take her back. The X-Men learn the link between the Mutant Control Agency and the Sentinels. They then decide to strike at the Control Agency to destroy the... Um, to destroy the, the data that they have there. And as part of the mission, they get ambushed by Sentinels. Morph is blasted and seemingly left for dead because the rest of the X-Men have to evacuate. And Beast is also left behind. Beast is then arrested and spends the rest of the first season in prison. <laughs> um, you know, just deciding that he wants his day in court. He wants to argue his case um, because Beast is especially clever and erudite and realizes that's important and i think this is such a good introduction um because it puts front and center the conflict between mutants and humans not heroic mutants versus evil mutants which you have with um anything that adapts Magneto as the first x-men that the, the first villain that the x-men face um looking at you uh, 2000 movie um no the focus here is on the humans and how humans react to mutants because that is one of the core tenets of the comics that especially chris claremont focused on and to me is fantastic the x-men are outsiders because they're mutants that's what's interesting and so yeah i really like this um this story and how it introduces the concepts and the characters and the action of leaving Morph and Beast behind causes drama. Wolverine punches Cyclops in the gut over it. You know, it is... There's a huge rift in the team that forms almost from this very first episode. It's fantastic. It's really well done. It works really well as a pilot to introduce these characters and these concepts. And then the series builds from that um really quickly you know the first season then introduces magneto um 
you know, using a lot of elements of the, the very first story featuring Magneto and the X-Men from X-Men issue one. Um, you know, he tries to free Beast uh, from prison and, you know, we reveal that he and Xavier are former friends, uh, which is something that I believe was added by Claremont and the... Or, or at least was developed more by Claremont and was also one of the one of the other aspects they reveal is that Magneto survived uh, a genocide. They don't explicitly call it a genocide. This is still a kid's cartoon and they do not make out that it's the Holocaust. But they imply that, yeah, Magneto lost his family. Um, you know, his... his he lost his family during a racial conflict and that's what motivated him to be magneto and this is this is everything that was added to the comics by clement to this was added in the 70s and the 80s to kind of humanize magneto to explain why he is the way that he is and i love it and i love that you know, because this this series has all this continuity that it can play with, um, it's able to take bits from the entirety of X-Men history at that point and use it. We also start seeing the introductions of some more recent elements of the comics. We see um, the Morlocks who kidnap uh, Cyclops and you know it's Callisto the leader of the Morlocks the Morlocks are an underground group of mutants that live in the sewers underneath New York City um believing that they're that they should hide themselves from the rest of um humanity because they're muta of of their mutations um they try to kidnap Cyclops and Cyclops um is saved by you know Wolverine and Jean and Storm and it's Wolverine seeing Jean and Scott together then takes a leave of absence, which then leads to him encountering Sabretooth and explores their relationship. Meanwhile, some of the other mutants, uh, so I believe it's Gambit, Storm and Jubilee, go to Genosha, which is um, a concept that was introduced by Chris Claremont and Rick Leonardi and Mark Silvestri, I believe, um, which had um, a... It's essentially an island that's built on a mutant slave class. Um, now, it, it is retooled in this. They're not genetically engineered enslaved mutants um, like they are in the comics, which are the mutates. Instead, they are captured mutants. Um, and so this also sees the introduction of some characters that would recur throughout the series. So Sunfire, The Blob, uh, Northstar, and a few others appear as captive mutants uh, on Genosha sort of lured in by this idea of a, a mutant human paradise and then captured by sentinels um, this episode also sees the introduction of Cable who was a very relatively recent addition to the comics at the time and would later be revealed to be the time lost son of Cyclops and uh, a clone of Jean Grey called Madeline Pryor because comics are weird and the X-Men comics are weirder still. Um, but Cable is essentially a, a time-travelling soldier who 
helps you know he's wearing x symbols um but also turns up to occasionally fight uh you know injustice so he he fights the genosian leadership meanwhile while all this is going on there is a subplot with senator robert kelly who is now campaigning for president and he wants to see mutants removed um this then builds up with some of the other characters like Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinels, and Henry Peter Gyrich, a government agent who's working with Trask, and how they're dealing with the the mutant problem, what their what their approach is to it. And it's revealed that Sentinels are being manufactured by a giant Sentinel called the Master Mold, um, who has plans of its own. You know, we then see the introduction of um, Apocalypse, um, one of a, a character introduced in the 80s uh, by Louise Simonson, an X Factor. Um, she is she is that was the to thinking of the writer apocalypse in this is incredible he's voiced by john colicos who played the character of core in star trek and went on to have roles in uh battlestar galactica and a few other things um he's amazing as the voice of apocalypse he's got a real gravitas to his voice uh proper shakespearean uh tone um we even get an adaptation in the first season of the two-part episode Days of Future Past, um, inspired very loosely by the original Days of Future Past storyline um, because it's trying to fit the adaptation of... You know, it's trying to fit the continuity that's already been established by this show. Um, so, you know, you still have this this desolate future where the Sentinels rule and Wolverine is leading a resistance. However, rather than using the character of Kitty Pride as the time traveller, they use the character of Bishop. Now, Bishop was, an, again, another recent addition to the comics at the time, a very popular addition, um, a, a mutant police officer from the future who was essentially... Um, you know, rounding up other mutants. He was fighting other mutants. And that's essentially what he's doing here. He's doing this for the Sentinels. And he comes back in time because he believes someone is going to betray the X-Men and kill Robert Kelly. And that's what causes his dark future. Um... You know, because he teams up with Wolverine and Forge, who is actually introduced in this story. Um, his present-day version is introduced later on in the cartoon. Um, and, yeah, Bishop is... Bishop then teams up with the X-Men, and they try and stop Kelly's assassination, which is being performed by Mystique, disguised as Gambit. Because one of the recurring elements of Bishop's story is he thought that Gambit was a traitor to the X-Men because in his timeline, uh, Gambit is left as the last witness of the X-Men's downfall. Um, you know, Bishop thinks that he's the, the one that betrayed the X-Men because he's the only survivor of the X-Men. Uh, 
turned out not to be the case in the comics, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, the Brotherhood of Mutants, led by Mystique, tried to uh, assassinate Robert Kelly. The X-Men managed to save him. However, Kelly is then abducted and this leads, leads then into the final episode, the final decision, um, where it's revealed that Magneto has abducted Kelly and Master Mold then rescues Kelly using the Sentinels from Magneto, um, leading to Magneto teaming up with the X-Men to stop the Sentinels. Um, because Master Mold is trying to force Trask to do his bidding and put uh, computers, essentially, in uh, the brains of Kelly and other world leaders to make them malleable. And, you know, what follows is this, this epic final battle as all the members of the X-Men and Magneto team up, stop the Sentinels. It's fantastic. It's brilliant to see the X-Men cut loose, um, especially, um, for example, characters like Wolverine. Wolverine's weapons are lethal. His claws are lethal. So, of course, he doesn't tend to use them a lot in the in the, the cartoon, and if he does, the lethality is toned right down. However, when he uses them against the Sentinels, he gets to tear Sentinels apart. And so this is a lot of fun. And this is just the first season. This is just the first 13 episodes. And there's other stuff in here as well. There's an introduction to the Juggernaut. There's an adaptation of Rogue's Origins. Um, you know, the story with Apocalypse's... Um, Apocalypse's introduction features Rogue trying to take a mutant cure because Apocalypse and Mystique are posing as... You know, Mystique is working with Apocalypse, posing as a scientist who says she has a cure for mutancy. And so Rogue tries to take the cure, but also trying to take the cure is uh, Angel. And Mystique, being protective towards Rogue, uh, because it's later revealed that, you know, she's Rogue's foster mother, um, manages to discourage Rogue away, but Angel is then taken by Apocalypse and transformed, along with three other mutants, into one of his horsemen, becoming Archangel, this metal-winged version of the character. And Apocalypse uses Angel and, you know, Archangel and his horsemen to attack the world. And then the X-Men manage to stop him in a fight in Stonehenge, and it's with Rogue's help that Archangel manages to get his mind back and fight against Apocalypse. And, you know... That's just part of it. <laughs> you know, these, these first 13 episodes are tight and every episode starts with previously on X-Men catching you up with what has gone on, what the relevant plot threads for this episode are. It's brilliant. Revolutionises, um, you know, children's storytelling and, and animated storytelling for kids by addressing all of this stuff in a mature way it takes everything that everyone loved about these comics the reason these comics were so successful not just with kids but with adults as well and puts it front and center and for me that is why it's so good and like i said that's just season one it gets so much better from there 
you know, season two is also serialized. It features a an ongoing subplot where Magneto and uh, Xavier are lured to the Savage Land by Morph, who turns out to still be alive. And, you know, Morph tries to enact his revenge on the X-Men, manipulated to do so by Mr. Sinister. Uh, you know, Mr. Sinister is one of my favourite X-Men villains. He is so fun. So fun. Um, you know, he's, he's camp and evil and manipulative and so clever and arrogant and yeah, I love him. He's sublime, and having him in this is brilliant, and he becomes the main recurring villain for season two, in the same way that the Sentinels were for season one. And again, Magneto takes on this not-quite-heroic, not-quite-villainous role that he did in season one. Because, you know, Magneto has elements of being right and there's a lot more original concepts in season two than there is in season one season one is very much adapting some of the greatest hits of the x-men comics whereas um season two is doing some more original ideas but still doing some social commentary like there's still things like um they bring bishop back and they do essentially an adaptation of the relatively new to the comics legacy virus storyline which was born out of the 1992 crossover executioner's song um the legacy virus storyline was essentially a commentary on the aids crisis and you know the sort of paranoia that went along with that and the time fugitives two-parter features an adaptation almost of that storyline and some of those elements um season two also introduces the friends of humanity which is a much more violent uh anti-mutant group essentially like an alt-right grassroots group um led by Graydon Creed, who is later revealed to be the secret son of Sabretooth. Um, you know, his father is a mutant. It's also even later revealed that his mother is Mystique, so he is the human child of two mutant supervillains. And, you know, it, the rest of his group turn on him um, when they learn this. But yet, Graydon Creed, again, one of my favourite villains in the X-Men comics, the dude is evil and like a very relatable kind of evil, especially in the modern day, especially in modern America. Um, you know, Graydon Creed is a character that fits perfectly alongside, you know, trash like Ben Shapiro and Donald Trump and Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, you know, these Matt Walsh, you know, these horrible, horrible people victimising so many others just because they can, just because they're so secure in their superiority. And that is one of the core tenets of the X-Men, and it's something this series does so well. Like, there are things said by Graydon Creed in the 90s cart in a kids cartoon show that people say nowadays 
you know, that, that, that are very, very strong allegories for things that people say nowadays, right-wing talking points that we see in the modern day. And it's made very clear that he is the bad guy. Like, he is wrong. He is evil. And that is so good. So good to see that in something that's 30 years old. You know, it's great when that stuff happens now. You know, although people cry it as too political. You know, it's not political. What well, the X-Men is inherently political. You cannot escape that. X-Men is political. It is leftist. It is queer. It is socialist. It is um, fighting for equality is like the core part of the X-Men. It is fantastic the x-men are an allegory for minorities whatever minority you are you are represented in the x-men and that is beautiful like chef's kiss beautiful as one of many reasons why i'm drawn to them it's one of many reasons why so many other people are drawn to them and they are so inherently political and to have that front and center in this animated series for kids is perfect and you know as fun as just straight up evil villains like mr sinister and apocalypse are having these more nuanced discussions with characters like magneto like conversations between magneto and xavier of like you know what's the right thing to do how is the right way to approach intolerance do you approach it with violence or do you try and approach it with understanding you know discussions that characters like kelly and creed and trask have you know that is that is the core of this series and so much of that is integral to the x-men comics integral to what um claremont burn and cockram and all these other people that he's worked with throughout the years established as part of this core concept of the x-men and i love it i bloody love it um and yeah the series is so good so so good as a result because yes it's adapting it's either adapting stories or telling its own unique stories but at the same time it's doing so much that's just lifted from the comics and is so true to what those comics are that it's it's beautiful and i love it <laughs> so uh that's just the first two seasons where did it go from there so as i said x-men was probably one of the first times in an animated series that a full season of episodes flowed from one episode directly into the next one um, and they did this with season one and they did this with season two and this was 
something that the producers fought very heavily for to have these ongoing story arcs to have these ongoing character developments um throughout the series and i think it was the biggest part of x-men's early success you know the previously on x-men became iconic because it caught you up on what the show was doing even if you saw these episodes out of order you weren't lost you could follow the story season three though which was much bigger it's 19 episodes as opposed to the 13 uh, that the first two seasons had a piece um season three is very different um most of the episodes with the exception of the multi-part stories are kind of shown in a random order almost and there were actually a lot of episodes for season three that that were created as part of season three but then didn't air until um season four or even season five in some cases um due to production issues but Season 3 would also adapt possibly the most ambitious X-Men storyline. And that is the storyline, the Phoenix Saga. Now, Phoenix in the X-Men comics is very famous. It's a storyline that mainly centres around the character of Jean Grey, um, where she is... Her, her mutant powers are enhanced to a... Uh, almost cosmic level, um, turning her into the character Phoenix. Um, Phoenix ends up taking the X-Men to Shi'ar space, where they deal with... Um, you know, they deal with a... Um, you know, a rogue alien emperor, um, save an alien princess, and... Uh, stop um a crystal from rewriting the universe um fighting a group of shi'ar imperial guard who are essentially pastiches of um dc's legion of superheroes um in terms of their power sets it's, yeah it's, it's a group of aliens essentially that work for this the shi'ar empire um, led by Gladiator, who is basically Superman with a mohawk and purple skin. Um, but that's only part of the Phoenix story. The Phoenix story in the comics starts roughly around issue 100. There's a three-part story arc leading into X-Men X -Men issue 100, um, where the X-Men are abducted from New York on Christmas by Sentinels, um, taken into a space station. They're fought with um, fought by a, an enemy of theirs called Stephen Lang. Um, they manage to defeat him, and their space shuttle comes crashing back to Earth. And Gene pilots the, the ship through a cosmic storm, uh, sacrificing herself for the rest of the X-Men to stay safe, along with the astronauts. The, the cosmic storm changes her. In the comics, the original idea was um, a cosmic storm is what gave the Fantastic Four their powers. What would happen if a mutant had the same effects on them? The Phoenix story was eventually 
um, retconned and revealed to be um, an alien intelligence that had actually possessed Jean Grey and um, all sorts of other ridiculous changes that came um, in the following decades of continuity. But originally, um, Jean was to become Phoenix. She was then manipulated to become Dark Phoenix. The Dark Phoenix saga is the most notable part of the story, but technically that doesn't come until later. That comes issue uh, 129 to 139 of um, Uncanny X-Men. So a good couple of years after the original Phoenix saga. Um you know, the original Phoenix Saga is one of the earliest stories that Chris Claremont started work on. Um, but like I said, Dark Phoenix is kind of more famous and has kind of overshadowed the original Phoenix Saga. I think the original Phoenix Saga is a very good cosmic romp. And once it happens, once the storyline happens, Jean remains Phoenix for a long time before she falls under the sway of a mutant called Mastermind and becomes the Dark Phoenix. Um, so, yeah, I, I like this storyline. Um, and obviously it's a long story. Um, and the series had already kind of made allusions um, to the Phoenix saga perhaps being in Jean's past already. Um, and that the X-Men had maybe already dealt with it. However, no, they decided to actually deal with it properly. And so, yeah, we introduce the Shi'ar, we introduce the Phoenix, and a lot... In, in effect, the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga take up nine episodes of this season. <laughs> And as I said, it's a 19-episode season. Five of those episodes are the original Phoenix Saga, um, or an adaption thereof. It's not... Uh, adaptation, sorry. Adaptation thereof. It's not completely one-to-one. -one. Um, like Days of Future Past, there are changes made for the, um, for the continuity that's already been established. Um, but a lot of the main moments are there um including the introduction of uh, the alien princess lalandra um the use of the x-man banshee fighting against his cousin black tom who's teamed up with the juggernaut um the m crown crystal um you know being seized by mad emperor deken and how phoenix helps the x-men to stop that the introduction of the star jammers uh the leader of which is the human pirate corsair who is later revealed to be Cyclops's long-lost father, who was abducted when he was a child. Yeah, it's a it's a very good story, and they they even cover some um, some other aspects of it, like um, a dark side of Xavier's consciousness, which is not something that was part of the original Phoenix Saga um, necessarily but is part of, at least not as I remember, it's definitely part of Xavier's story, like this, this sort of dark, repressed side of his powers um, that, you know, sort of runs wild and threatens the X-Men. And yeah, I, th I think it's a very good adaptation. The 
it appears in episodes three to seven of this season after the Shi'ar are set up in the 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 opening two-parter out of the past which features the character of lady deathstrike who in this has been changed to be a former lover of wolverine um which is a slight change to the character although not a huge one after that there's a few um other episodes um some of which pick up on plot threads from previous seasons like we see the return of archangel who has now become obsessed with hunting down apocalypse um we see the return of Longshot uh, from the alien dimension mojo world uh, mojo having appeared in season two i believe it was um and i i quite like mojo he's a lot of fun he's he's basically an evil television executive um he's a lot of fun when he's written well and the x-men cartoon does a quite a good version of him um with a very good performance from the voice actor and so yeah the the series is continuing mythology continues to build but then it's revealed that in one of the major changes for the phoenix saga in this is it's revealed quite early on that Phoenix is an alien possessing Jean's body. And this is mentioned by Xavier. Xavier sort of finds out and realises that Phoenix is still inhabiting Jean's body and that Jean is starting to struggle. Um, oh, there's also a, a great episode, before I get into the Dark Phoenix saga, um, featuring Iceman, um Iceman comes in in this um he's revealed that he's one of the original 5 X-Men um but he left due to his rebellious attitude and this episode also kind of reveals that Angel was one of the original 5 as well um which obviously is true to the comics but that hasn't been mentioned in any of Angel's previous appearances um <laughs> so they just kind of skipped over that um and yeah, he's trying to find his girlfriend, Lorna, who has left him um, because she has joined a government-sponsored mutant team called X-Factor, um, which is led by Forge and also includes um, Cyclops' long-lost brother, Alex, or Havoc. Although Havoc's identity is not revealed in this episode. But still, it's an interesting thing. Also, Quicksilver, I believe, is part of X-Factor in this um because quicksilver comes back in the next season as well but yeah the dark phoenix storyline um is four episodes and it is it takes place in episodes 14 through to 17 and it's only four parts but each of these four parts is so tight to the original comic book plot of the Phoenix Saga. There are some changes, but there are also some scenes that are almost lifted from the panels, as if they took the panels as storyboards. And there are some changes and substitutions. For example... Um, Rogue kind of takes the place of Colossus as kind of the super strong um, character. Um, you know, Beast sort of takes the place of Nightcrawler, who was one of the comic team at the time. 
um, you know, Gambit for Banshee, that sort of thing. But for the most part, you know, this is the Phoenix Saga. It is the Dark Phoenix Saga. Um, you know, a group uh, who in this is called the Inner Circle Club because Hellfire was apparently uh, too risque for a child sh uh, for a children's show. Um, despite the fact they're all still dressed in, you know, Emma Frost is still basically dressed in a corset and pants and stockings, um, <laughs> as is uh, Dark Phoenix herself when she becomes part of the club. Yeah, the, the mutant Jason Wingard, also known as Mastermind, he starts influencing Jean Grey, Phoenix, using um, his powers of illusion and using Emma's telepathy, Emma Frost's telepathy. And, you know, Phoenix starts to fall under his sway. And, you know, the X-Men try to save Dazzler, who debuted, like I said earlier, in the original Dark Phoenix saga, along with Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride, I should say, is the only X-Man who I think was a main X-Man character at the time, like a, a main serving member of the X-Men team, who doesn't appear in this show at all. And I think that might be linked to um, her, her role in Pride of the X-Men. Um, because obviously in that they were going to use her as the audience surrogate, which is also what the role that Jubilee was taking in this. But, you know, I mean, the X-Men membership has ballooned in the 30 years since um, the original cartoon. But, yeah, pretty much every major X-Man from the team in the comics at that point appears as pretty much a major character in this. You know, Nightcrawler gets a couple of episodes, Colossus gets a couple of episodes, Banshee appears in a few episodes, Forge appears in a few episodes, um, you know, Dazzler, Longshot, um, Psylocke, I think, it even appears uh, towards the end as well, um, you know, in, in a relatively major role. Archangel, Iceman... Um, you know, all these these important characters, even even Sunfire um, appears in a minor role. I think the only other major one who doesn't is Thunderbird, who is part of the second generation team who dies on their first mission. Um, but his brother Warpath does appear in the series as kind of like a background character. Because um, that's another thing this show did really, really well, is it used a lot of background mutants that if you knew the comics if you knew who these characters were you know you, you found their presence welcome if you didn't then it was usually a cool costume or a cool power set for an action sequence and so many characters appear in that way um from members of x-force um members of the new mutants um you know, loads of random villains. Um, and yeah, it's it's a lot of fun in that regard. But anyway, the Dark Phoenix Saga, the second, uh, second part of the story involves the X-Men all being captured by the Circle Club 
and you know phoenix being manipulated by wingard to fight the x-men and you know they managed to fight off the inner circle um and get outside in central park and that's where phoenix is unleashed as the dark phoenix she battles the x-men in part three um it leads her on a rampage she defeats the team and she flies off into space and hungry the phoenix destroys a star which explodes and destroys a whole planetary system um you know, which is witnessed by a Shi'ar strike cruiser, which she then fights off and flies back to Earth. And the X-Men try and figure out a way to capture Jean and suppress the Phoenix and try and force Phoenix from her body without hurting her. Um, you know, there's lots of things where she's she's like begs Wolverine to to end her because she can't control herself and Wolverine can't because obviously he loves her. And then part four features Lalandra, who by now is the queen of the Shi'ar, um, revealing the destruction of this planetary system to the X-Men. Um, you know, what G Dark Phoenix is guilty of. And they declare that the Dark Phoenix is the destroyer of legend and must die. And... Xavier, using his knowledge of the Shi'ar, calls for a trial by combat. And so, on the blue area of the moon, which is something introduced in the comics, um, the Shi'ar Imperial Guard and the X-Men battle for the fate of Jean Grey. And it's fantastic. And these four episodes are solid. Like, if you want to experience the story of the Dark Phoenix saga and you're not really one for comics, you can't go wrong by watching these four episodes. These four episodes are so close to the comics, um, they get a story by credit for Chris Claremont and John Byrne. That's how close they are. They are incredible absolutely perfect there are lines from the comics there are panels from the comics you know it's it, it's a truncated version of the story like i said the, the dark phoenix saga covers a lot of issues like um you know part one is loosely inspired by x-men 130 to 132 um part two is basically um x-men 133 and 134 um part three is mainly 135 and 136 and then um part four is x-men 137 which is the end of the phoenix saga so you know those eight issues um cover the entirety of the story and they're really really good like really good they are solid um, and like I said, if you're not one for for comics, you can't really go wrong but to experience the story in this way because it is pretty much perfect. The biggest changes from the original comics, um, besides the name of the Hellfire Club and the, the obviously the makeup of the X-Men team, the biggest change from the comics are literally that the the star system 
is empty um, when Dark Phoenix destroys it. In the comic books, it wasn't. The co in the comics, Dark Phoenix killed five billion people by destroying that star. And that is what she was sentenced to death for. And then the biggest change comes in the final moments. You know, in the final moments, um, Jean manages to exert control over the Dark Phoenix and, you know, realising that the X-Men can't bring themselves to kill her, Cyclops and Wolverine can't bring themselves to do it, she takes control of a weapon on the moon and destroys herself. And this was something enforced by the editor at the time, Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter is a very controversial editor at Marvel Comics. He um, was a big part of their lineup during the early 80s. And like I said, he's a very controversial man. He was, um, you know, a fan who made it into the industry. And he had a lot of big ideas but um i've got to admit i quite like a lot of his decisions that he made the the comics produced by marvel at this time at the time that he was editor-in-chief are really good you know the guy knew his way around a story he was he was good um you know he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way um, you know, a lot of top talent left Marvel Comics and a lot of it went to the distinguished competition. Um, you know, people like uh, Alan Moore, people like Marv Wolfman, who may not have made some of their biggest series at DC, like uh, the Noon Teen Titans or Watchmen, uh, you know, Hellblazer, without, um, without Jim Shooter. But this was one of the decisions I think he was bang on the money with he theorized you know his opinion was that gene could not simply be depowered um she could not which was chris claremont's original plan he wanted to depower gene gray completely um completely cut her off and then explore that story um leading into x-men uh, 150 and 200 you know because by this point claremont had been writing for a while he was not planning to go anywhere. He was planning the long game. Um, and Jim Shooter turned around and said, no, she killed a whole planet. She killed five billion people. She has to die. And I think he was right. And she did. She stayed dead in the comics for a few years until um, Jim Shooter left the editor-in-chief position. Someone else took over. Someone else came up with an idea to bring Jean Grey back and to reveal that uh, Phoenix wasn't Jean, and that Jean was actually in a cocoon under Jamaica Bay, which is where the space shuttle had crashed at the start of the whole thing. And, yeah. I don't know. I, the whole bringing Jean back thing, I have thoughts on that um, that are completely separate. I will cover the X-Men at some point, and I'll probably discuss that then. Um, but... The biggest change in how that affects the cartoon is that in the cartoon, like I said, they knew that Phoenix was possessing Jean. And so Jean uses, this time not a weapon on the moon, but the Shi'ar cruiser in orbit to destroy herself. 
and that's when Phoenix comes out, sort of free of the influence of Dark Phoenix by... Because it turns out it was Jean's emotions that were corrupting her. So now that Jean is dead, Phoenix is sort of whole again, back to normal, without that destructive influence. And Dark Phoenix takes part of the life force from all of the X-Men assembled, including Xavier, um, to restore Jean Grey to life. And it's explained that that means they'll all die younger than they would. Uh, Wolverine and Cyclops both offer to give the whole sacrifice, like to sacrifice their entire being uh, to bring Jean back, which is very sweet. Um, but yeah, I, I really like this story. I think it's, like I said, a fantastic adaptation across not just the, the, the final four, but even the first five episodes. Like, so much of the iconography, even with the changes made in the first five episodes, is still there. Like, the the famous shot, which is the cover of X-Men 101, of Phoenix rising from Jamaica Bay, that's there. It's in the, it's in the cartoon. You know, she rises up and declares, I am Phoenix, with the firebird surrounding her. You know, in the, the, the fantastic green and gold costume. You know, it's there. You know, the, the, the battle in the castle, which became memed in the uh, uh, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch. Um, you know, that's that episode is where that comes from. Um, you know, Juggernaut smashing his way around a castle chasing the X-Men. Um, yeah, it comes from Phoenix Saga Part 3, but you didn't know that. <laughs> you know it, it's it's good i really enjoy it um and then obviously you know there's a couple of other episodes to finish the season one of which um has cyclops and corsair learn the truth about their relationship um which was a nice little epilogue to the phoenix saga i thought um and yeah and then you then it goes into season four after a, a, a storyline featuring the brood um, or, you know, not quite the brood. The, the brood are essentially the X-Men's answer to the Xenomorphs because uh, Chris Claremont was a huge sci-fi fan. Um, and so, you know, he came up with his own version of the Xenomorph, um, which is the brood. And they kind of do an adaptation of that storyline as well. Um, it's not a not a terrible adaptation, but yeah, they can't quite call them the Brood. So yeah, um, season three I think is definitely the most ambitious part of X Men: The Animated Series. This was a real attempt to, like I said, to adapt one of the biggest storylines in the comics and to adapt it so faithfully you know they they done that elements of that already um most notably days of future past which again is another big storyline um days of future past appears only a few issues after the phoenix saga ends it's uh, issue 141 and 142 of uncanny x-men 
and yet the the days of future past version that's used here is very different because it the days of future past storyline was not the only time that future timeline appeared in the comics um it got revisited several times most notably in the um the comic series excalibur um but also a few other times since and and then of course by kind of merging that with bishop's own future timeline um the days of future past title you know episodes in season one while they adapted the the present day elements of the days of future past storyline from the comic um and some elements of the future timeline version there were also elements of bishop's story and a few other stories in there as well that all related to that universe um for example the super sentinel nimrod who appears in uh, subsequent versions with the character of Rachel Summers, who, again, another member of the X-Men. Actually, I'm not sure if Rachel appears in this series. I don't think she does. So that's another notable exception. She might appear as a background extra. Um, but yeah, so... Yeah, Nimrod is an advanced uh, future Sentinel um, who's bright pink and metallic and has gone on to become a a major X-Men villain, um, especially in the modern day. Um, so he was, again, quite fun to see in, in adapting that storyline in a very different way. But Phoenix, the Phoenix saga in this is done in such an honest, um, true-to-the-comics way. You know, it's not it's not cherry-picking the best parts of multiple storylines and it's not adapting the storyline to fit its own continuity. It's making that storyline work. It's making its continuity work with the storyline so that they can tell that storyline as accurately as possible. And for me, that works wonders. Um, I suppose the good way to compare the X-Men animated series is to look at something like the MCU. Um... The MCU, take for example something like Infinity War. Infinity War has elements of a lot of Thanos' stories from the comics. And I expect that Secret Wars, when we eventually get that, will do the same thing. Um, but it is not a close adaptation of the original Infinity War story or even the original Infinity Gauntlet storyline. There's a lot of other elements in there as well. And that's kind of how a lot of season one and two especially of the x-men animated series worked there was multiple elements from 30 years worth of continuity phoenix it was literally the phoenix saga comics and i think it worked so well as a result so how do you follow uh, a season that has adapted one of the best comic book storylines um, for the characters that you're making a show about. Well, you carry on doing more of the same. And season four, in a lot of ways, is a bit sim a bit more similar to season one and two. There's not as many direct adaptations of comic storylines, although there are still plenty of things inspired by the comics, and where relevant, there are plenty of... 
um, story ideas that, you know, quite closely echo, um, you know, issues of the comic. Like, for example, there's a flashback episode called Xavier Remembers, which focuses on the first battle between Xavier and the Shadow King, which is mentioned in an, one of Claremont's more early issues of Uncanny X-Men. And, you know, there are parts of that that are lifted almost directly. Um, and, like, even the fact that Xavier, while walking around Cairo, has his pocket picked by a young Storm, who grew up as a pickpocket in Cairo, um, you know, when she was an orphan. Um, you know, just little touches that were introduced in the original comic that are still part of the the series and this continuity of this series. But the thing is, the X-Men comics were still running and they were still going very, very strongly. Um, you know, by the time season four came out, it was 1995. And, you know, X-Men had recently had its 30th anniversary in the comics. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, the storyline Fatal Attractions. Um, Fatal Attractions was a storyline featuring um, Magneto, his acolytes, which was this army that he'd gathered around him of fanatical mutant followers um, who believed in his promise of a better tomorrow. And it was literally Magneto declaring war almost um, and trying to enact like his final endgame. And the comic storyline for Fatal Attractions... While not terrible, it does suffer from some 90s excess. Um, it's not as bad as some of the comics that followed it. Like, the original Fatal Attraction storyline is quite good. The art is quite good. The plotting is quite good. However, it was followed quite closely by an Avengers crossover called Blood Ties. Um, you know, Avengers X-Men crossover, which was not very good. And that involved war on Genosha with the character... Um, with the Acolytes in the aftermath of Fatal Attractions. Did not like Blood Ties at all. Um, you know, going... I liked it at the time, but going back and rereading it as an adult, it is, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, however, Fatal Attractions is is better than I give it credit for. There's, there's some good moments in the comic, like the fact that Colossus, um, you know, broken-hearted by the, the recent death of his sister... His, his little sister Iliana to the legacy virus leaves the X-Men and joins the Acolytes. Or, um, you know, Magneto ripping the adamantium out of Wolverine's body um, forcibly, which then prompts Xavier to mind-wipe Magneto, um, which became a big foundational point leading into the next few years of storylines. Um... But the, why am I bringing up Fatal Attractions? I'm bringing Fatal Attractions up because two of the earliest episodes in Season 4 that weren't, um, you know, leftover episodes from Season 3 um, were the storyline Sanctuary. And Sanctuary features the Acolytes, features Magneto's Asteroid M, which is this orbiting asteroid that he's placed in space with a space station where he's declared that all mutants are welcome. And the leader of the Acolytes, Fabian Cortez, 
betrays Magneto and blames the X-Men, um, some of whom are on the station. And, you know, it's, it's a fun little storyline. And, you know, it's inspired in part by Fatal Attractions, but also in part by um, Chris Clement's final story, which I mentioned earlier, which was um, X-Men Volume 2, Issues 1 to 3, um, which again featured the Acolytes, featured Magneto. Um, and featured the debut of Fabian Cortez. And Cortez is a, a trickster and a manipulator, and it's revealed that like one of the acolytes used to be one of Xavier's former lovers, um, Amelia Vogt, and she helps the X-Men against Fabian and his madness. Um, yeah, it's a pretty solid adaptation. I can't hate it. Um you know, the episodes that follow introduce some more concepts. They We see the return of Morph. We see the introduction of Nightcrawler. I love the character of Nightcrawler. He is my favourite X-Man. Um, you know, the, the interesting dichotomy of someone who looks so devilish, but, you know, and looks so threatening, but he himself is this charming, fun-loving Christian swashbuckler. Love it. <laughs> the The episode Nightcrawler focuses more on the religious aspects of the character because that is one of the easiest ways to introduce Nightcrawler, I think. X-Men 2 did the same thing when they introduced him um, and they didn't really develop the swashbuckling side of the character. But I can't fault them for that. And, uh, you know, Nightcrawler does have an effect. He has an effect upon... Um, you know, Wolverine, he has an effect on um, Rogue as well, um, who also meets him. Rogue, Rogue, Gambit and Wolverine are in this episode. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice episode. Like I said, I like Nightcrawler. Uh, it's the, you know, it's a shame it takes so long into the series for him to appear. But then... Then one of the more interesting episodes happens, which is the episode One Man's Worth. Now, One Man's Worth went on to actually inspire a comic book storyline. So this is sort of the opposite of the Phoenix Saga. The thing is, cartoon series take... Uh, animated series take a long time to make, and especially ones that are ambitious. And X-Men... As much as Saban Entertainment got a reputation uh, on Power Rangers for being notoriously cheap, um, they put some decent money into X-Men. And it shows, because if you compare the X-Men animated series to its Marvel contemporaries, so, like I said, this was 1995... Spider-Man started at the same time. Spider-Man started in 1995. Iron Man had already been been and gone, so had uh, Fantastic Four, and Incredible Hulk was on the TV. Hulk, Iron Man, and Spider-Man have... And, and Fantastic Four have noticeably lower animation quality than X-Men. Despite the fact that they are introducing other elements, there's 
Um, for example, Spider-Man was quite prominent for some of its early CGI cityscapes um, that it used for New York. For better or worse, some of those have aged very badly. However, the animation quality is worse. And you can tell this because in the second season of Spider-Man, the X-Men appear. Um, and they look radically different. The reason they look radically different is because the animation is worse. And by which I mean, I don't mean to say the animation in Spider-Man is bad. Spider-Man is a very, very good show. It's very well animated. Um, as were a lot of the other series at the time. But the art style of X-Men is one that uses um, three-colour shading, right? So there is the, the main colour, the shadowed colour, and the highlight colour. And you see this on all of the X-Men, all of the, 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 the sets, the characters, everything, right? All the other Marvel series are animated in two-colour shading, especially Spider-Man. And it's also how the final few episodes, which were produced at a much cheaper budget, of X-Men would also look. You know, they use this two-colour shading. And it loses so much richness um, that makes the show look worse. Um, you know, it'd be the equivalent of, um, like, one of the more noticeable shows that was another contemporary, uh, animated contemporary of X-Men was the Batman animated series. Batman animated on black paper. And it used the black paper to create these big foreboding shadows. Everything looked dark, everything looked noir and kind of gothic and grim. And... It works so well to punctuate Batman's world, right? Imagine what that show would have looked like if you'd animated it on white paper. That's the difference between the the three-colour shading of X-Men and the two-colour shading of something like Spider-Man. It is a night and day difference. You can really see um, a difference in the quality. And I think it's one reason why X-Men has stood the test of time, despite the fact that, that there is, you know, stock footage, there is, um, you know, animation errors, there are, you know, corners cut, and some bits can look cheap. I'm not saying the show cannot look bad. And, you know, sometimes there's some episodes where actors are completely recast or vocal effects aren't used. Like, there's a couple of appearances of Apocalypse where he's not voiced by John Colicos. Um, like the episode Obsession I mentioned earlier in Season 2 with Archangel. Was it Season 2 or Season 3? The, the Season 3 episode. Um, and so... Or, or, you know, there's reappearances of the Sentinels in Season 4 where they're not voiced by the uh, original artist, they don't have the, the same vocal effects on, and it makes them sound worse. It makes Master Mold sound worse, for example. So there are definitely corners cut in some respects, but that richness of animation makes it pop. But anyway, I was talking about um, One Man's Worth. One Man's Worth was greenlit for the TV series in January 1994. Okay. Um, this story then became the basis and inspiration 
for the crossover series Age of Apocalypse. Now, Age of Apocalypse was one of my favourite X-Men stories when I was a kid. I still really like it. I think it's a very solid story. Um, again, despite some of the 90s excess, um, because there are elements of it that are quite excessive. But it remains one of my favourite sort of dark universe alternate what-if stories. The concept is... Um, the concept for One Man's Worth is that um, a villain from Bishop's Future, Trevor Fitzroy, travels back in time, ordered by Master Mold to kill Professor X. And this creates an alternate present timeline where instead of you know, a war between... Well, instead of the war that we had between the mutants and Sentinels, now there's a war between, um, you know, Magneto's band of rebels, um, which features, you know, Magneto, Forge, Nightcrawler, plenty of other characters uh, like Sabretooth um, that we've seen, and Wolverine and Storm, who are now husband and wife, battling um, desperately against not just sentinels but other superheroes like we see giant man from the avengers bishop and his sister shard arrive in this timeline after the time change and they recruit wolverine and storm to help them go back in time and stop fitzroy they they go back and in part one they fail they then do it again in part two um and, you know, they managed to go back and save Xavier. And before everything returns to normal, um, we get this, these nice touching moments between Wolverine and Storm as they say goodbye. And, yeah, it's it's a nice episode. It remains very character-focused in this, focused on both the young Xavier and focused on um, Storm and Wolverine and their relationship in this alternate present. This then inspired the comic storyline Age of Apocalypse. Age of Apocalypse features a similar concept of um, Xavier being killed in the past and Magneto forming the resistance um, against an oppressive regime, except this time the oppressive regime is not the Sentinels, it is Apocalypse. And... Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a very good storyline, and I will probably talk about it when I talk about X-Men, because, like I said, it's one of my favourites. I'm going to gush about it. Um, but I, I strongly recommend, if you you haven't, go and read it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, it's essentially, the um, for this alternate timeline, they cancelled and replaced every X-Men title for four months and they did four issue miniseries for these four months. Uh, each book ended by, well, there was the giant alpha issue, then were these four issue miniseries, which all interwove and featured different casts of characters, and then they culminated in an Omega issue, um, which sort of tied the storyline together. And, yeah, I, I love it. There's some really epic moments in it, some very, very dark moments as well, and just shows 
you know how much better things are because of because of Xavier um and the effect he has because the whole yeah the 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 way he dies is through a previous story called Legion Quest um a character called Legion goes back in time to kill Magneto um so that Xavier's dream can become a reality but he goes back to a time where he knows where Magneto is, which is when Xavier and Magneto are friends. And so Xavier jumps in the way of the Cyblast and dies instead. It's very good. Very good. Great storyline. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of Age of Apocalypse. The reason um, it inspired Age of Apocalypse was because Bob Harris, who was supervisor of the X-Books in the 90s, um, they, the X-Books had their own they were considered a group within marvel and each group and marvel at the time had its own editor and so um bob harris was the editor of x-men in the same way there was an editor over spider-man there was an editor over avengers etc and um you know not only was he group editor for the x-men he was also an advisor for the tv series and he had full access to all the designs and story for one man's worth and then decided to turn it into the age of apocalypse and that followed you know he had those designs by may and age of apocalypse came out about eight months later so you know it's very good um another um relatively recent storyline which gets adapted in season four is the story Weapon X Lies in Videotape, um, which adapts the story, the Shiva scenario, from Wolverine issue 48 to 50, um, which was written by Larry Hammer, uh, art by Mark Silvestri. Um, there's also a bit of um, some later storylines um, from 1993 called uh, from issue 61 to 64 um where basically this is the episode uh weapon x lies in videotape which is um essentially a photograph reveals a whole load of painful memories for wolverine and begins to drive him insane so to keep him from being keep his mind safe he travels to the one location that he thinks may hold the answers to his past which is the weapon x facility where his bones were laced with adamantium now wolverine's origins in the comics have always been mysterious and you, you know a lot of his history was sort of slowly drip released to us by um, Claremont. Claremont wrote him as a very mysterious character. It took the work of a lot of later artists and writers to sort of flesh out Wolverine, to flesh out exactly what happened at the Weapon X facility, how the adamantium got laced onto his bones, what that meant, which memories he had, what the you know what was false, what was true, um, his relationship to characters like Sabretooth, Maverick. Um, you know, his history in Japan, his history for the Canadian Secret Service. All of this was just added over the course of, you know, 15 or so years um, between 1975 and 1990. 
um, the two most prominent additions, apart from the stories that I'm I mentioned, which become the the feed in for this, um, was the original Weapon X saga, which was published in Marvel Comics Presents and was done by Barry Windsor Smith and remains one of the goriest comics I think I've ever read um, that isn't an adults-only comic. Um, you know, it is... There are bits of it that are gruesome. Like, there, there is dismemberment, there is lots of blood. Um, it's done in a very four-colour pop art style, um, which makes everything pop. And you know, Wolverine's running around naked, berserk, um, killing people left, right, and center. So, which they actually adapted into the movies of uh, X Men Apocalypse for possibly X Men Apocalypse's best scene. But yeah, this episode focuses on his relationships with the characters of Sabretooth, Maverick, and Silver Fox, who are all suffering quite similar uh, breakdowns. And it find they find out that many of their actual memories were implanted and a lot of their true memories had been destroyed um, with the lab. And, you know, that they used to be a team for the Canadian Secret Service. They fought Omega Red, which is why he had such a, uh, a history with Wolverine earlier on in, in the previous episodes that he appeared in. Um... You know, it's a it's a good little a good little adaptation. Um, my one gripe with it is probably that Jubilee isn't a part of it because she was a part of the comic storyline. Um, but you know, a lot of these revelations, you know, the history between Wolverine and Silver Fox, how they thought they were lovers, and then Sabretooth thought he'd killed her. And how it was all fake memories. It was all implanted. Or was it because, you know, it pans out at the end of the episode and it reveals that there's um, a heart in a tree that says Logan and Silver Fox. Or it's, it's, it's their initials um, in a tree. And in a love heart. And it's like there's some falseness there but there's also something genuine there. And you're never quite clear on exactly what is what. And, yeah, this was all a very relatively recent addition to the comic book mythos that, you know, the X-Men series bought in and adapted in its own way. So not only have they tackled some of the, the biggest moments in X-Men history at this point, but they were starting to adapt ongoing stuff you know new storylines um that were being told and this is as well as adapting you know stories from long ago like season four also sees the adaptation of the proteus storyline proteus is the son of moira mctaggart he is a reality warper and he leaves to try and find his father and there's other stuff that goes on with it there's um, you know, in the actual story adapted for the cartoon, he's not quite as mad and evil as he is in the comics. Um, he also isn't killed like he is in the comics. 
Um, the storyline in the comics takes place during the period between Phoenix and Dark Phoenix. Um, as well. Um, like I said, there's about 20 or so issues between the two storylines. Um, where 20 to 25 issues where a lot of stuff happens, including Jean thinking that the X-Men are dead for a while, which is how she falls under Wingard's spell um, in the comics, you know, which is much more of a slow build in the comics than it was in the series. Um, but, you know, they, they adapt that storyline, but they adapt it very well because they, they make it about something relevant to children because this is a children's show and they use it to tackle the idea of divorce and being from a divorced family um they did similar things with a, a previous episode um and you know foster homing and being an orphan um which they did through cyclops in a previous episode where he went up against um zebediah kilgrave the purple man the the character most famously known being played by david tennant in the Jessica Jones series. Um, they also adapted, um, you know, in the episode Family Ties, they adapted a storyline that reveals that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch um, were... They are the children of Magneto. And, <clears throat> you know, they have a connection to the High Evolutionary who was trying to, to keep them safe from from Magneto because their mother came to him you know so they adapt that they reveal that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are Magneto's children um, they do an episode blood called Bloodlines which brings in Nightcrawler and reveals that Nightcrawler's birth mother is Mystique who is also the foster mother of Rogue and also the birth mother of Graydon Creed. And so, you know, we get, you know, we get some nice moments there that, again, develop Nightcrawler as a character, show, um, try and humanize Mystique a bit, um, bring back Graydon Creed, um, who hadn't at this point hadn't been seen since season two, um, and reveal just why he is the way he is. Uh, you know, it's not just Sabretooth, it's also Mystique. Um, you know. And again, has the you know, a nice moral message between Nightcrawler and Mystique where he forgives her. And yeah, it's it's sweet, but not in a way that feels like it's talking down to the audience. It feels true to the characters. It's still... You know, it's still in some elements a... A kid's... Storyline. You know, a storyline that's appropriate for children. With a moral message that they can react to and, and recognise... You know, and the idea that parents aren't perfect, they can be fallible, is is a great one, I think, to teach kids. But, 
I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I, th I just, I think it's a really good way of telling these stories to show... to show these these harsh truths and consequences in ways that don't talk down to children, in ways that are refreshingly honest, and like I said, true to the characters. Like, it never feels like any of these characters are different to their comic versions. You know, there, there's a, a very strong theme on family running throughout the X-Men, um, in the comics and in the series. Um, very definitely a found family vibe, um, with the members of the X-Men themselves, but also, you know, the, the familial ties between characters in this show, um, and th their parental figures, you know, not just, not just Nightcrawler and Rogue with Mystique, but also, um, you know, Cyclops with Corsair, um, you know it's yeah there's a good a good through line there i think that's you know i'm, I'm moira mctaggart with with proteus and you know the anger he feels at her and his father yeah i've kind of lost my train of thought a bit um <laughs> So I apologise for that. I've gone on a bit of a ramble. But yeah, it's... Like I said, it feels so refreshingly honest. And like I said, feels true to these characters. It feels like it should. Like it's it's right. And like I said, family is is a theme of the X-Men that's, that's very present, especially in the modern era. Um, but throughout its run... You know, this is a family, a found family. You know, um, one of, one of the, the, the good comparisons I saw is someone describing... It was a Tumblr post, it was a, a shit post, um, where someone basically said that, you know, the, the Fantastic Four are a family, like an honest, true family. A uh, The Avengers are co-workers, the X-Men are a gang. And you know, they are a gang. They're a close-knit gang of friends that are bonded in a way that is so close to family. And I think this is why the X-Men resonate so well for minorities and queer people especially, because that whole concept of found family is something that is so true to the queer experience. Um, you know, because... A lot of queer people um, are not blessed to have family that fully supports them. And so they end up with a found family instead. And, you know, that that's true of the X-Men to a certain extent. They are ostracised from their families a lot of the time for being mutants. And so, yeah, the, the found family becomes very, very important. X-Men Season 4 culminates in a big story arc. Um, they do a four-part story arc at the end of Season 4, issue episodes 18 to 21, and it is called Beyond Good and Evil. 
Beyond Good and Evil was originally designed as the conclusion of the series. Um, it is designed to tie every major ongoing plot thread together. It only introduces one really new character, which is the character of Psylocke, um, who's a psychic who confronts Archangel. Um, but it brings in so many other previous characters. We see the return of Cable. We see the return of Bishop and her his sister Shard. We see the X-Men, Mr. Sinister, Magneto, Mystique, Apocalypse. Um, even Emma Frost from the Hellfire Club. Even the Shi'ar. Essentially, what happens is Apocalypse taking Cable's time device arrives at the axis of time um, and launches a plan to capture all of the psychics, um, you know, all the psychic mutants and most powerful psychics around the history and use their power at the axis of time to destroy all of time and then recreate the universe, a universe where he rules and he will rule unchallenged. And, you know, the X-Men, Cable, Archangel, Shard, they all team up to oppose him. You know, they, 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 there's time travel. There's all sorts going on. It is incredible. I love this episode. It is a great conclusion. And, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Obviously, the X-Men win in the end, but there are so many great moments. Um, you know, Magneto and Mystique and Sinister are all working for Apocalypse. But obviously, um, they don't all stay working for Apocalypse, shall we say. Um, you know. And it's good. And there's a lot of great cameos. There's a lot of um, psychics that you might recognise from the comics. Not just X-Men comics, but, you know, Marvel comics in general. And... Yeah, it's a, it's a great conclusion to the series that ends pretty much every major story arc um but then of course it didn't turn out to be the final episode because while it was planned to be the ending and it was planned to bring an end to the series and this epic conclusion and tie it all together uh fox decided to buy more episodes at the last minute and you know they bought 10 new episodes for season 11. The first four are leftover two-parters that had been that hadn't been finished. Um, one of which is an adaptation of the again then recent comic book series, uh, the Phalanx Covenant, which had um, which was a comic storyline from 1994. Um, but again, it's kind of a, a loose adaptation because it also 
introduces other elements from the comics, such as the character of Warlock, who is one of the New Mutants, and, you know, a character who, by the time of the Phalanx Covenant in the comics, was long dead and had been replaced by uh, another character called Douglock, who takes a, a more central role. Um, Phalanx Covenant, I think, is another very, very good episode in terms of bringing a lot of continuity. Um, you see Beast and Warlock team up with Forge, Mr. Sinister, Amelia Vogt, and Magneto to oppose the Phalanx. Um, which I like. I, yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. I, I, I don't dislike it. I think it's... It's almost an adaptation in name only of the Phalanx Covenant storyline, but there are enough elements from that original Phalanx Covenant storyline from the comics that I think it is accurate enough. The Phalanx Covenant storyline in the comics um, wove through all the X-Men books, um, and it was essentially split into three different story arcs. Um so X-Men and Uncanny X-Men dealt with one story arc, which was the founding of Generation X. They were protecting the, the newer generation of mutants from the Phalanx threat. Um, X-Factor, Excalibur, and X-Force all teamed up together um, in a series called Life Signs, I believe. They were trying to get to the root of the Phalanx infection and trying to stop them from um, signaling the rest of the Phalanx in space. Um using their control spire which is an element of this cartoon adaptation and then of course there was wolverine cable gene and cyclops all teaming up together in um the wolverine and cable series now this cartoon features these same elements of it being a desperate struggle that this is something that is affecting all mutants um you know, in the comics, it was mainly affecting the X-Men. It was all of the X-Men, um, as opposed to every mutant everywhere. But, you know, bringing in someone like Mr. Sinister helps kind of underline that this is more of a threat. Um, but, you know, Quicksilver appears, Forge appears, uh, you know, so we get to see X-Factor again. Um, you know, the X-Men get captured Quicksilver gets captured. Um, some of the Acolytes get captured. Yeah, I think Banshee gets captured because Amelia's working on Muir Island with Banshee and Moira. So Banshee gets captured. So, yeah, it fits as a kind of the, you know, the desperate struggle. And again, by bringing in the character of Warlock and tying it to him and his own struggles with his race, um, who in the comics are the Technarchy, not the Phalanx, um, but the Phalanx and the Technarchy are related. It, again, it's it's like the Days of Future Past adaptation earlier, where it's cherry-picking moments. And then, you know, you get the final six episodes, and the final six episodes, they're made a lot cheaper. A lot cheaper. Um... Saban decided to produce them in-house rather than involving Gratz Entertainment. Um, they hired a studio in the Philippines, which was simply called the Philippine Animation Studio, who worked on the second season of Fantastic Four. 
um, because Acom was unavailable due to other productions that they had in their pipeline. And they produced six episodes. The Fifth Horseman, which sees the return of uh, Fabian Cortez and his link to Apocalypse, which is um, sort of picking up from a plot thread in, uh, in the aftermath of Sanctuary. Um, a story featuring Wolverine and Captain America teaming up against the Red Skull um, called Old Soldiers. That was quite a good one. Um, uh, and a very unconventional episode called Descent, which essentially revealed the origin of Mr. Sinister. Again, something that had only recently been revealed in comics at this point. It um, had been revealed in The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which I think was 1993, um, if not slightly afterwards. Um and in this, they kind of link Mr. Sinister to uh, Charles Darwin and to Jack the Ripper and other sort of late nineteenth um, century figures. So, and you know, an ancestor of Xavier is trying to stop him before he goes too far. It's a very unconventional episode. Doesn't really feature any of the X Men at all. Like Xavier's ancestor is voiced by the same actor as Xavier, but it's very unique very unique um and then the final episode the very final episode is called graduation day um you know at a mutant human relations summit guy rich tax xavier and while the x-men and moira try to save him xavier is dying and, you know, they try to contact the Shi'ar to come and save him. But they need Magneto's help to do it. Magneto is gathering a mutant army because of the, you know, the, the saber rattling by the humans. And, you know, he's gathering this mutant army on Genosha until the X-Men come to him and tell him that Xavier is dying and he halts all of his plans for conquest out of respect for his only friend. And, you know, Xavier uses his powers to help the X-Men signal the Shi'ar. Lalandra comes, takes Xavier away to cure him. But it means that, you know he has to go with her to the Shia homeworld and he might not come back. And then the final shot is Magneto and the X-Men, including Morph, um, outside the X-Mansion, saying goodbye to Xavier as he leaves with Lelandra and her ship. And despite the animation quality of this episode, it's a really good episode. It's a really well-written send-off for the show. And sort of, you know, bringing Magneto back and ending it with him on the side of the X-Men. Yeah, I really like it. And... Yeah, it, it just feels right. It feels like the X-Men, you know, they've lost 
their mentor. Magneto's lost his friend, but they found something together. And again, that ties it back to the sort of the found family thing. And, you know, it suggests that there's still issues between humans and mutants. Things aren't neat and tidy. And without Xavier, you know, we know the impact Xavier not being around can have through one man's worth. But it's still a hopeful, more optimistic ending than it could be. And I like it. Now, X-Men 92 was not the last adaptation of the X-Men. Um, in fact, two further animated adaptations failed. Uh, failed? Followed. Um, X-Men 92 remains the longest running, um, or, or remained for a while anyway, the longest running X-Men, uh, the longest running Marvel animated show. Um, it was eventually superseded by Ultimate Spider-Man when it hit its 77th episode. Um, but, you know, it's 76 episodes. Um, you know, X-Men 92 was, was a long-running show. Two major cartoons followed. Um, the first was X-Men Evolution. Um, this came about in the early 2000s, I believe. X-Men Evolution was a four-season-long um, series that focused on the X-Men and Brotherhood as teenagers. And they attended the... Not the Xavier Mansion, which was where they lived. They actually attended a local high school um, called Bayville. It's a lot better than it sounds from that premise. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, it was a different cast. Um, Wolverine and Storm and later Beast, who was added in the second season, are older teachers at the mansion itself. Uh, the mentors for the X-Men and helping them learn how to control their powers. The actual X-Men team um, was the students of Cyclops, Jean Grey, um, Nightcrawler, Kitty Pride, Rogue, who, true to her comic book version, was a member of the Brotherhood before joining the X-Men during season one. And um, the brand new character of Spike, who is essentially an adaptation of the character Marrow from the comics, um, but also Storm's nephew for some reason. Um Spike ends up kind of being written out of the show towards the end um, quite badly. I, th I think he was added as an attempt at diversity, and I'm fine with that. The problem is I don't think he was a great character. I think he was everyone's least favourite member. <laughs> um, meanwhile, the, the Brotherhood, like I said, get introduced. We have... Toad, Blob, Quicksilver, Avalanche, and they are supervised by Mystique. And, you know, again, for the most part, it adapts a lot of 
it it doesn't directly adapt any stories. It more sort of incorporates them into its framework. Um, you know, um, Juggernaut appears and the Brotherhood and the X-Men team up to take him down. Um, you know, and they, they work together um, as Juggernaut starts rampaging through... Not even rampaging. He's just walking. He just literally escapes prison and starts walking towards the mansion. And because no one can stop him, <laughs> you know... Um, he just carries on waging through them. Um, Magneto is revealed to be Mystique's backer, and he's revealed sort of towards the finale of the show, uh, finale of the first season. And I think there's some hint at a previous relationship between him and Xavier, but it's nothing like the quite well-developed relationship in X-Men 92. One of the things that X-Men Evolution was more notable for, uh, for me especially, um, was bringing in the characters of the New Mutants. Um, it did this by introducing a, a wider cast of students um, that sort of operated at the mansion as well. And there was Cannonball, Sunspot, um, Wolfsbane, Jubilee... Iceman, a character called Berserker, who was based on one of the Morlocks, and Magma, and I'm missing one more. I think it might have been Danny Moonstar. And obviously some of those are New Mutant characters, and some, like Iceman, are not. Um, eventually, mutants were secret throughout all this. Um, also, Kelly, Robert Kelly... Um, I think it was actually Edward Kelly in this. He was the principal of the school. Um, he took over in season two after Mystique disappeared because Mystique was the, the principal first. Um, and... Yeah, the, the New Mutants were quite interesting additions. A lot of them didn't get fleshed out until later. Like, Mutants were outed and then Jubilee and... Uh, Wolfsbane disappeared like their parents took them away from the mansion um, but um, you know this then led to Cannonball, Sunspot and Iceman especially oh, oh and Boomer they introduced Boomer as one of the um, the new mutants and she got quite a lot of development she was a lot of fun um well, Boomer, Boom Boom, I think is the code name they actually use for her. She's had several code names in the comics from Boom Boom, Boomer, Meltdown. I think there's at least one more, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, Boomer appears in this, and it's quite a faithful adaptation of her. So I was quite pleased to see that because I, I do quite like Boomer, and I like her version in X Men Evolution. Um, X-Men Evolution also built up to a reveal of Apocalypse. It introduced uh, characters like Gambit and Colossus and Pyro um, towards the end of its third season. It also introduced the Scarlet Witch on the side of the Brotherhood. Um, you know, it had one episode which focused on the character Arcade, um, who is a, a, a great character. He's a, a games master. 
and he was manipulated by Mystique into taking control of the X-Men's danger room while the X-Men were in it, and he thought it was a video game, which was so much fun. Um, yeah, it was a really fun episode that was in season two. Um, season four was kind of shorter. It was kind of truncated. Um, but, you know, introduced the Morlocks. Spike ended up going through a mutation and ended up living with the Morlocks. Um, one of the most famous additions to X-Men continuity that came from Evolution, though, was the character of uh, X-23. Um, X-23 is a clone of Wolverine um, who is female and has a different claw arrangement. She has one claw on each foot and two claws on each hand. Um, and obviously she was adapted into the movie Logan. Uh, she's the character Laura. Um, yeah, she originated in X-Men Evolution. She was created for it. And she's great. She's a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, X-Men Evolution... Like I said, it introduces Apocalypse. It sort of slowly builds to the reveal of Apocalypse and then reveals him in the fourth season, fourth or fifth season. I think the fifth season was like five episodes. Um, so it's essentially like season four, part two. Um, and yeah, um, Apocalypse was originally introduced as this like sort of floating god pharaoh before they that wasn't particularly popular with fans so they remade him and made him more of the traditional apocalypse look um but yeah i didn't hate x-men evolution to me x-men evolution's best scene though is its final scene which is a montage after they beat apocalypse um xavier sort of sees the future or thinks of the future anyway and we see magneto at the school teaching the new mutants we see gambit and colossus joining the x-men team along with x-23 um you know we see the brotherhood becoming the freedom force um, which was something that actually happened in the comics at one point. You know, Mystique's Brotherhood of Mutants became a government-sponsored team to sort of... They, they preceded X-Factor, the you know, the government X-Factor led by Forge. Um, you know, it was like government-sanctioned operatives, despite the fact they were the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Um, yeah... And and that final scene, I think I have seen it on YouTube. It's very good. Um, and, you know, this this series also introduced Angel and actually made him cool as Angel without transforming him into Archangel. There's even one episode where Scott, Gene, Beast and uh, Iceman and Angel all team up. So we get the original five X-Men teamed up and it makes that lineup cool. You know, because that lineup is not great you know it's not the best x-men lineup i know it's a classic one but it's not the best x-men lineup and yeah this this cartoon actually made it quite good so like i said x-men evolution doesn't directly adapt anything uh, in the same way that x-men 92 does but it is pretty good uh another 
series that followed, which was only a season long. Um, and this followed in the early 2010s. I can't remember exactly what year, because I think, I think it was 2012, because I'm pretty sure it was cancelled as a result of the Marvel Disney buyout. And so we had season one, but season two was never greenlit. And, you know, instead we got Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which I'm fine with. That show is great. But at the same time, so was this. And this is Wolverine and the X-Men. Wolverine and the X-Men ran for 26 episodes. And it's, again, it's a serialised storyline. In the opening three episodes, an attack happens on the mansion. Um, the mansion explodes. Jean and Xavier are presumed missing. Meanwhile, Magneto is gathering his forces in Genosha. Um, and a mutant control group and sentinels are on the march. The X-Men have disbanded. Wolverine gathers them together to oppose the... The mutant, uh, the mutant control agency, and you know, he gathers the X Men back together, brings Rogue back from the Brotherhood because she's now gone back to them and joined them again. Um, you know, again, characters like Nightcrawler, Kitty, Beast, Archangel, even Emma Frost, who is a member of the team. Uh, she'd been a member of the comics team for a while at this point. Um, they all join the new X-Men, along with Pyro and Forge and Iceman. And yeah, the, the, the three-part opener kind of builds the team back up and reveals that Xavier is alive, but he's in a coma. However, they're able to communicate with him, and it turns out that Xavier's mind is actually in the future. And the future that he is in is the days of future past future. And what follows is a, a very good season of storytelling that adapts a lot of, again, more recent X-Men ideas um, while still building on Days of Future Past and featuring characters like Bishop in the future timeline, um, you know, working with Xavier. Uh, and I think X-23 is in it as well. I think Marrow is there as one of the future X-Men, while also focusing on the, the modern-day characters and the, the the things in Genosha. And yeah, I really like this. It's a very focused series. And it was actually written by um, Chris Yost, um, who worked on the comics. He worked on X-Force, uh, quite famously. Um and I think he'd also worked on X-Men Evolution as well. And, yeah, I really like Wolverine and the X-Men. I thought it was very, very good. But, again, not directly adapting anything, just very inspired by stuff um, from the comics. The, the worst thing about Wolverine and the X-Men, though, is the fact that it ends on a cliffhanger. The three-part finale reveals that the the day the mansion was destroyed it was actually Jean's phoenix powers manifesting and so you know the final three parts 
features the return of Jean Grey as Dark Phoenix and does like a loose adaptation of that storyline. Um, Emma sacrifices herself um, to sort of bring Jean back. And yeah, it's it's clever. I yeah, it's a it's a good ending. But then in the final moments, and this is the bit that annoys me so much about the fact that this got cancelled. Um in the final moments it's revealed that Xavier is still in the future, but the future has changed. And it's no longer the days of future past timeline. It's now the Age of Apocalypse timeline. And we see a final shot of Apocalypse on his pyramid, flanked by Mr. Sinister and the Age of Apocalypse version of Cyclops. And oh my god, I was so excited. And then it got cancelled. <laughs> and yeah, I'm still mad about it, damn it. Um, because the thing is, production was underway on season two. Like, scripts had been written, concept art had been made, characters had been designed. We were going to get accurate Age of Apocalypse versions of characters like Morph, Sabretooth, Sunfire, Magneto, Deadpool was going to be in it. And you know, as well as all the modern day stuff. And some of the scripts have leaked online. Like one of the first X-Men fan pages I followed um, when I joined Facebook was posting stuff from season two that someone behind the scenes had been able to get hold of. Yeah, great stuff. Um, but again, neither of those are adaptations of... The comics, not in the same way X-Men 92 is. There's only really one other thing that you could say adapted the X-Men comics in the same way that X-Men 92 did that could possibly challenge X-Men 92 as an adaptation. And that's the X-Men film series. And, again, the film series cherry-picks elements of certain storylines, and some of them it adapts very, very well. X-Men 2, for example, is a pretty close analogy to the comic graphic novel God Loves Man Kills, also by Chris Claremont, one of the best X-Men comics I think I've ever read, um, and is a very, very good graphic novel. I re highly recommend it. Um, but... Again, there are changes made. Stryker in X-Men 2 is an army general. He's not a fanatical preacher in the same way that he is in the comics. Um, ditto with something like Logan. While it's inspired by um, Old Man Logan from the comics, um, rather than adapting the travesty that is that storyline, I'm sorry, I know it has its fans... I hate Mark Miller's writing for Marvel. I think it is awful. The The guy is such an edgy tryhard, and you can see it with things like Kick-Ass, and it means that his Marvel work is terrible. I know some of it is iconic, like Civil War and The Ultimates, but I hate it, and I really hate Old Man Logan. I think it's the worst example of his work, um, despite some great ideas. 
um, like, you know, Wolverine being manipulated into killing the X-Men and, as a result, refusing to unsheath his claws. Great idea. The fact that it's Mysterio that does it, the fact that it's... The, how it's done, no, makes no sense. Um, and then, of course, then all the other edgy elements that are thrown in, like spider bitch and the inbred hulk family no no hate it glad none of that made it into logan because logan is a perfect movie <laughs> like Lo logan is solid um as a film it's not my favorite x-men film i think my favorite x-men film is probably days of future past um but i would agree that logan is the best made film in the X-Men film franchise. But yeah, I think Days of Future Past is my favourite. Again, Days of Future Past, though, not a complete one-to-one -one adaptation of the original story. Um, more close to the original story uh, in some respects than even X-Men 92 was uh, in some respects, and but still very, very different and in fact, in some ways, probably even inspired by the X-Men 92 series, like Bishop having a, a quite a prominent role in as one of the future mutants, quite possibly inspired by the cartoons, both X-Men 92 and Wolverine and the X-Men, where he had had that same role. Um, but, you know, again, Mystique was a prominent element. Kitty was a prominent element. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of similar elements. One of the, the biggest criticisms, though, which I have around the X-Men film franchise, surrounds the character of Wolverine. Now, don't get me wrong, I really like Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. He's not perfect... He's not quite the Wolverine from the comics. Like, back in the 90s, when it was originally planned to do an X-Men film, um, the actor that they were eyeing to play Wolverine, who I think would have been perfect in the role based on the comic book portrayal of Wolverine, was Bob Hoskins. And, you know, he could have, he could have done that role fantastically. He really could. Um, but, you know, Hugh Jackman's take on Wolverine is a very different beast to what Wolverine is in the comics. Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, as he is written and as he is portrayed, you know, being played by Hugh Jackman, who is a stunningly good-looking man, um, as well, he is... A leading man. He is a lead character. He's the focal character. He's a protagonist. Even in the X-Men team movies. Now, and again, Wolverine is the protagonist of Wolverine and the X-Men, which I've already said is a great show and one of my favourite adaptations of the comics. I think it's brilliant. I, I do recommend watching Wolverine and the X-Men if you get a chance. You probably have to pirate it. I don't think it's on anything legal. Um, it's not on Disney Plus here in the UK. I'm not sure about abroad. Um, I think it might be in America. 
Um, but I don't know where it is here. I don't think it's actually on anything. Um, and obviously Wolverine has a focal role in that, but Wolverine's role in that becomes a mentor figure rather than a protagonist. In the, the films, he is a protagonist. Um, this is one reason why I like Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past, he takes on a more mentor role to the young Xavier and to Beast. The film is very much still focused on Xavier and Magneto. Um, you know, their relationship from uh, X-Men First Class being one of the strongest aspects of that um, newer version of the cast. And obviously Mystique gets quite a prominent role as well. Um you know, say what you want about Jennifer Lawrence's portrayal as Mystique. It's a good adaptation of the character, especially in that film. Um, subsequent ones, not so much. But in Days of Future Past, I think it's done very, very well. Um, but Hugh Jackman is, is done as a leading man. Which means he gets the majority of the focus. Like, he is the point-of-view character for the first X-Men movie. He gets a prominent part of the screen time and story in the second X-Men movie. He quickly supersedes Cyclops as Jean Grey's main love interest and leader of the team in X-Men 3, The Last Stand. It, he then gets his own trilogy of movies. And like I said, I, li I like... Logan, I think Wolverine as well is very, very good, like The Wolverine. It's a very good adaptation of the first Wolverine miniseries. Kind of falls apart in Act 3, but Act 1 and 2 are pretty much solid. Um, you know, the, the, the issue I have with Act 3 is mainly the Silver Samurai. It's a giant CGI boss fight. And, yeah, I could do without it. Uh, you know, everything up until then, very, very good. Very good, very interesting, a lot of fun. Like, some great action sequences. The fight on the bullet train is brilliant. Uh, Yukio is great. Um, X-Men Origins Wolverine, though, that is awful. Stay away from that movie. It is terrible. Just do not own it. Throw it in a dumpster fire. It is not worth your time. Even with um, Dominic Monaghan in it. it uh, and Ryan Reynolds... It's, it's terrible. Do not watch it. Um, although Leif Schreiber as Sabretooth is great in it. Like, he is the movie's one redeeming quality. <laughs> you know, he is he is fantastic. As is Taylor Kitsch as Gambit, actually. He's quite good. Um, but, yeah, they don't, they're not enough to save the movie. Um, and then, of course, like I said, in... The, the newer X-Men films, they focused from first class onwards, they focused more on um, Xavier, Magneto and Mystique. But still, Wolverine is a part of Days of Future Past. I think he's handled very well there in that he doesn't overshadow the others. Um, but he still has to be part of it. He has to have um, a large extended cameo in X-Men Apocalypse. Um, which again, adapts the Weapon X stuff, which we'd already kind of seen in the old timeline of the X-Men universe. Don't get me lost, stuck, started on the timelines of the X-Men film series. That's a whole other nightmare. Um, and, you know, we, we're getting him back in Deadpool 3, which 
or Deadpool and Wolverine or Wolverine and Deadpool, however it's going to be referred to. Um, and I'm happy for that, despite the, the beautiful ending that Logan was for the character. I'm still going to be happy to see him again. But I don't need it. I don't need Wolverine to have that huge of a role. And I think this was one of the elements where X-Men 92 shined. Don't get me wrong. Wolverine has had... He has been the X-Man with the longest running solo title. He's not the first of the X-Men to get a solo title. That was actually Iceman. And Nightcrawler also got a solo title before Wolverine as well, I think. Um, or, or just after Wolverine. Um, but Wolverine was the first one to have a solo ongoing title rather than just a limited series. And it's been running pretty much since the late 70s, early 80s. And Wolverine still gets his own solo adventures. He is a popular character, and part of that has been the mystique that was built up around him and who he was and his history, although a lot of that has been revealed in recent years. And, you know, there's definitely solo stories that you can tell. And even in season one, there was an episode where they took Wolverine away from the team and gave him a solo story. But... When Wolverine is part of the X-Men in X-Men 92, when it's a, an episode that focuses on Wolverine as part of the team, he doesn't overshadow the others. He is a team player. He's definitely one of the best characters on the team, but, you know... Other characters get moments to shine, whether it's Gambit, whether it's Beast, Rogue, Storm, Jubilee, Cyclops. They all get moments to shine, not just Wolverine. And that is brilliant. That's exactly how it should be. And that, to me, is... One of many, many, many reasons, as as I've discussed throughout this episode, why for me, X-Men 92 is the best X-Men adaptation. The best adaptation of those comics. Because it is so true to the characters and what those comics are. In a way that the films weren't, the subsequent cartoons weren't. All of the weirdness, all of the bizarreness from those comics is represented in X-Men 92. You know, the Savage Land, the Shi'ar, Mojo, the Brood, it's all there. As well as everything else that everyone would expect, like Magneto and Charles's relationship, Mr. Sinister, Apocalypse, Wolverine's history with Weapon X, you know, the, the love triangle with Cyclops, Gene, and Wolverine, um, you know, the will-they-won't-they they romance between Gambit and um, Rogue, the time travel stuff with Bishop and Cable and the Sentinels, the, the human mutant racial tension, everything 
is there and it is perfect and it is one reason why x-men 92 still holds up 30 years later and one of many reasons why disney is bringing it back <laughs> you know disney aren't just bringing this back because it's what you know because it's what the fans want you know a lot of fans we we hadn't asked for this we hadn't expected this but we're getting it because it's the best way to revitalize what the x-men are and bring that back into the modern day everything that the x-men are as good as the film series was and you know it's 20 year history as a film series from 20 yeah from 2000 up until 2019 when dark phoenix released you know those films got an ignominious end ignominious end i should say um when when the, the fox buyout happened there were plans they were planning to bring in mr sinister they were planning to tie together um deadpool the new mutants laura from logan and the the 90s you know the the prequel versions of those characters they were planning to tie them all together against mr sinister i was so on board for that they were going to bring in gambit they were going to do an adaptation of a storyline where kitty pride is evading a demon throughout the house you know even new mutants new mutants wasn't terrible i will stand up for that film i quite liked it it was it was it was good you know it wasn't great that was the thing everyone built their hopes on it and thinking oh this would be good because it's been saved for so long no it was it was just good if it hadn't released as one of the last X-Men movies, people wouldn't judge it anywhere near as harshly as they do. Dark Phoenix, however, Dark Phoenix is not great. It makes all the same mistakes with that storyline that X-Men 3 did, but worse. But New Mutants was pretty good. And, you know, the X-Men film series has, is like that. It's peaks and troughs of middling quality, but also all very grounded and very pedestrian compared to what the comics are x-men 92 is none of that the quality is there throughout and it is very good even in the worst episodes those those horrible cheap looking episodes right at the end the voice quality is there the story quality is there the animation isn't but everything else is and it's still there it's why graduation day the final episode is still as good as it is you know other episodes are better, like Beyond Good and Evil is a much better conclusion than Graduation Day, but Graduation Day is still good. And I'm excited to see X-Men come back. I'm excited for X-Men 97. The concept art that revealed at Comic-Con was amazing. All these characters are coming back. They look almost exactly the same. I think Storm's got a new haircut, but apart from that, they all look exactly the same. Um, they showed concept art for Nightcrawler, Morph, Forge, Cable, so they're all coming back as well. Um, Mr. Sinister, Emma Frost, so they're all coming back. And Magneto's leading the team against Sentinels. 
I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know if they're going to serialize it. I don't know how many episodes it's going to have. I don't know if it's going to have a format like What If or like some of the other Disney Plus Marvel shows. To be honest, I don't care. I am just excited that X-Men is coming back. And I'm really looking forward to it. So, once again, thank you everyone for listening. Um, I think I've made a pretty good case as to why I think X-Men is the best adaptation. I did ramble uh, a fair few times. Um, X-Men is one of my favourite things. It's I grew up reading these comics. I've been reading the X-Men for a long, long time. Um... I think the only comic I've read more than, for longer than the X-Men has been Sonic. Um, you know. So, yeah, they mean a lot to me. These characters mean a lot to me. These storylines mean a lot to me. And I've, I've read most of their major storylines, or at least know what happened in them. And so, and then the X Men have had a lot of storylines. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, you know, the X Men to me are like the equivalent of like my first sports team. They, they you know, they're the first, the first real love, <laughs> um, the first thing I, I really supported. And you know, I always felt kind of disappointed by the films in that. You know, they had this this varying quality. They had issues with their adaptation. They never felt to me like they captured the magic of what the comics were. And it was going back recently and re-watching X-Men 92, which I had seen so much of back in the day. But actually re-watching it with fresh eyes and watching it with my, my kids as well. Um, you know, one of my sons got very into it, and so we had to we had to sit and watch it together. And realizing and remembering just how good it was, and how much of those comics is there, so much of it is there. And for me, that's that's brilliant. And I'm really looking forward to X Men '97. As I said, I think it's going to be. I think it has the potential to be incredible. Um, you know, most of the original cast are returning. Um, not all of them in the same roles. Alison Court, for example, has said that um, she will not, while she returns to the series, she is not going to be returning as um, Jubilee. She feels it's more appropriate for an actor, actress of Asian descent to voice Jubilee, which I agree with. Um, you know, she's uh, obviously the actor who played Charles Xavier will not be returning. He passed away. Um, the same for the actor who, uh, you know, John Colacos. You know, not if they I don't know if they're going to be um, bringing back Apocalypse immediately. But obviously, John Colacos passed a few years ago. I, I don't think they're the only ones. I think a few other members of the cast have passed away. Um, but for the most part. All of the others are going to be voiced by their original actors. Um, you know, Lenore Zahn, Cathal Dodd. And 
those are the actors that, that I hear when I read these characters in the comics. You know, I don't hear Hugh Jackman or Anna Paquin as, or um, Kelsey Grammer, um, or, well, Patrick Stewart, maybe. Um, you know, I hear these characters, these actors as the X-Men. And I probably always will. And it's because of this show and the effect this show had on me and how well it adapts these stories. And if you've never seen X-Men 92, I highly recommend it. Season 1, especially, is a great adaptation of some of the more outlandish concepts in the X-Men and brings in some of the... so many concepts and characters... Um, but in a way that's very good. As I said, the, the adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga in season three is solid, so solid. It's absolutely incredible. Um, you know, to the point it's like watching a motion comic sometimes. Um, and then, you know, if you have, you know, if you have watched the series and you have gotten into it, you know, you can't go wrong by finishing beyond good and evil and you know watching every plot line that has built up get culminate in that that amazing storyline <laughs> so yeah i i really recommend x-men if you've not seen it um now obviously this episode was delayed uh, i meant to get this out a lot earlier i have other episodes that I'm still working on, still finishing off, um, but they are hopefully going to be dropping very soon. Um, hopefully within a few days of this one going up. Um, and hopefully I can get them all out in very short order. So um, we'll get this one out for now. And fingers crossed I can get back to some sort of a, a schedule around here. That would be lovely. Um... In the meantime, my friends, you all look after yourself, you look after your mental health, take care of yourself, take time to do what you enjoy. Um, that's, I think, so important. Um, if you don't take time to enjoy what you enjoy, if, you, if you're just moving from work um, to home and, you know, or work to sleep and, you know, what are you living for? You know, you have to, you have to live for yourself. Live for the things that you enjoy, whatever that might be. Um, you know, look after yourselves, guys. Until next time. Thank you, my friends, for once again joining me on Gardo Goes Geek. Your continued support for this podcast means the absolute world to me and I am grateful for every single one of you who stays and listens to one of my episodes. It means the absolute world. Now, if you would like to engage more with me or the podcast, we have a Discord community, small but growing, and, and we now have commissions open on Ko-Fi. So if there's a topic you would like to see me cover, you can pay me to cover it. All funds will be used for legal purchase of the relevant items 
where I do not have them. Have a look on the link tree for more information. Until next time, look after yourselves. Thank you.